begin with a word of prayer. There are no handouts for next week because um, next week um, we're going to uh, pause in our forward motion here. Um, I want to use week, if you bring regular notebook paper, what we're going to do is we're going to engage um, criticism that is directed toward uh, Bible-believing Christians by the media. And I'm going to use as, a, as an exercise the lead article in U.S. News and World Report uh, first week in October. I think it's the October 4th issue. Is the Bible true? If you've seen it in the library or you get it, happen to get a subscription to it. Um, I want to go through that because it behooves us to know um, the conflicts and how you, how you respond to this kind of thing. Um, we uh, have to be able to engage people because what you read in the media is what 80% of the people out in the sidewalk believe. So if we don't engage that um, aggressively and point out where the real differences are, uh, we're just uh, peripheralized. The gospel is just shunted off into a corner somewhere. So it's actually part of evangelism, good evangelism, to be able to engage uh, what the worldview is doing. We have examples by Paul in all the epistles. Um, we don't think of it that way because when you and I open the Bible, we read the New Testament, we read Romans, we read Colossians, we read Ephesians, we all know them by those names. What we fail to kind of remember is that originally those didn't have those names. Originally those were letters that the apostle wrote to ordinary believers who, had, who were conflicting with the world system on some issue. Colossians, it was Gnosticism. In Rome, it was the racial-ethnic problem between Jews and Gentiles. And so whatever the background is, there was a problem there. And not to know that, not to appreciate that, is to read the Bible in a total vacuum. And when you, when you have the bad habit of reading the Word of God in a vacuum, what happens after a while is you become a vacuum because you become, we become unable to contact the world with what we're learning. So that's why it's not too healthy and that's why I think it's important enough to pause next week so we, we won't have a handout. Uh, if you do happen to get a chance to read that article, if you would read it, um, if you um, don't have the article, um, if you can kind of thumb through some magazines or something where Usually around Christmas or Easter, every news magazine has something about what is the real Jesus, or do we really know the Bible is true? And there's always an article like that. So rummage around, see if you can find one. Um, so you just so you come in realizing that this is a conflict, and we want to, as Christians, be good soldiers uh, and, and cope with it. Father, we thank you for our time here tonight. We thank you that you have given us grace, that you've given us the great promises of Scripture, that we can cast our care upon you because we know that you care for us. That in this verse we've been looking at in Hebrews, that by faith we understand that you have spoken out your plan for history, including every detail of our lives, that the script is not written by man but by God. And we thank you that we have these precious promises that we can rely upon day in and day out, that we can have a compass and an anchor amidst the chaos that surrounds us at all times in the world system. 
So we ask that your Holy Spirit once again illuminate us to cause us hearts to understand and appreciate who you are by what you have said and what you have done in history. In Christ's name, amen. Um, Again, just to review at the beginning here, because we want to keep this drill up of faith resting in the promises of Scripture. It's a very simple uh, part of the Christian life, but it's very essential because um, you can't do this if you're not certain yourself of the authority of Scripture. So let's turn once again to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. We'll look at it for a few minutes. And again, I urge you to whatever translation you have, or if you prefer a different wording, uh, write it out. Um, this particular promise um, is at the root of where we co- collide with the world system and everything in it. Now, I want to look at this promise again taking it apart each week, little pieces of it. Once again, if you follow with me in your Bibles, verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. And the thing to notice, first right off the bat, is by faith we understand Now, isn't it interesting that in the modern worldview, faith is the opposite of understanding? Haven't you ever heard faith versus reason? Well, I'm a reasonable. I don't, you know, it's the weak-minded people that uh, have to believe. In our modern vernacular, faith and reason are set apart from one another. It's always set apart. And the man in the street will, nine times out of ten, think of belief as a weak substitute for reason. If you can't be reasonably sure, then you just take it by faith. Haven't you heard that? That's, that's the bifurcation that happens. Now, we want to cut away at that a little bit tonight. Reason and faith. These are considered in the world to be opposites. Verse 3 denies that. Can't read verse 3 and and accept that premise. So, right away, we're stuck on the first verb of the verse. The verb says, by faith, we understand. The word understand here is the word to think and to reason. So, it's not true that faith and reason are opposed. Faith and reason go together. In fact, in fact, this verse turns the argument on its head the other way and says you can't reason without faith. So, let's think about this for a moment and just review so that we we don't get snookered into this this little game that often goes around. By faith we understand. We understand what? We understand that the ages, all of historical experience, all of the ages were prepared by the Word of God. So we understand that there is a plan. 
over all things. Okay, now let's think about it for a minute. How can we be, how could you possibly reason without faith to this kind of a conclusion? Now let's think about the dilemma of the non-Christian. Apart from the scriptures, let's go back to a simple diagram again. Apart from the scriptures, you and I are victims of our experience. We're trapped in this limited experience box. Right? You only have so much experience. You work with computers, uh, you work with databases, you know that there's a database and it only has n pieces of data in it, okay? And the, the n plus one, the n plus second, the computers have finite databases. Our brains are finite analogs of computers. They have finite experience and finite memory. You see the problem here? So, on the basis of non-Christian thinking, you've got to start with finite experience. Well, now the problem with that is, how do you come to grandiose conclusions? Right now, in this country, we are seeing this sort of an error being made by almost everyone in the media. If, unless you've been on the moon recently, you've heard about the Kansas, the state of Kansas school board. And the media has just gone into a feeding frenzy, knocking all Christians everywhere because well, they're going well, to kick out evolution out of the Kansas state public education system. And, you know, it's these right-wing Christian uh, extremists, again, butting into our intellectual freedom. If you read the fine print of what's going on in Kansas, that's not, not at all the issue. School board never said anything about not teaching evolution. There's not a, not a shred of evidence for that. What the school board of the state of Kansas argued was that evolution cannot be taught as a final truth. That's all they said. They said it's a theory. Now look at the, look at the feeding frenzy that's going on. Now, you know, there's a, there's a simple little rule of warfare. You know how you can tell when a bomb hits a target? By the screams in the enemy camp. Now, when you get this kind of an emotional response by people on all the big three networks, the newspapers, and particularly the teachers' unions, when you see this kind of a feeding frenzy, because somebody's just pointed this out, that's all that's happening here. All the school board's saying is, on the basis of finite experience, including scientific data, you can't erect grandiose conclusions. That's all I said. No problem. But the feeding frenzy is because people are really angry. There's an intense anger and a hatred to be reminded of this. That's the problem. And it gets back to this idea that the non-Christian has all the time that reason is opposed to faith. That reason is equipped somehow in and of itself to make infinite and grandiose conclusions. What do I mean by infinite and grandiose conclusions? I mean every time you assert that there's something that is absolutely true. To be absolutely true, what do you mean? That if you go to Mars, it's true. If you go to Moon, it's true. If you go anywhere in the, in the Earth, it's true. It's an absolute truth. That's a grandiose conclusion. It's a generalized, absolute conclusion that the world happened this way. 
conclusions, grandiose conclusions. How do you get that way if you're operating inside this finite experience box? You see, you can't get out of the box unless what happens? Unless you believe, unless you take a by-faith position in something, you can never escape the box. So the non-Christian is faced with this dilemma of infinitely extended thought, language, and meaning out of his box. He is trying to be godlike in his conclusions when he's only a creature in his experience. Now think of this for a minute. What is this smack of? There's a, there's a word for it in the Bible over and over again in the Old Testament. We don't see it too much in the New Testament. But what is the practice of creating a surrogate God? Idolatry. And the unbelieving mind is inherently idolatrous. Whenever you are attempting, or I am attempting, or the man in the streets attempting to make grandiose conclusions on the basis of this, he is, in essence, an idolater. No right to make those conclusions. That's why this promise in Hebrews 11, by faith we understand, is a forthright confession that I am not, as a, as a creature, I'm not playing God. I'm not playing God here. I recognize my creaturehood, and so when I go to formulate grandiose conclusions, I don't do it this way. That's not my modus operandi. My modus operandi as a Christian is that because I have a creator who thinks, speaks, and has meaning before I existed, he is the source of the absolutes. He is the source of the grandiose conclusions. If I come to grandiose conclusions, they're only derivative of his. I have to think God's thoughts after his thoughts. He thinks first. He thinks completely. I think afterward and I think partially. That's the way to view the reason. Okay? I, my reason is a slave to his reason. I have no other choice because my, my database isn't that big. Can't, can't even compete. So that's why I come to a rest. Why, as a Christian believer, I faith rest in the Word of God. It's a fundamental principle. So when we claim the promises of God knowledgeably and by faith, this introduces all kinds of implications for your everyday life. Because now we can fundamentally relax. We have a resting point. And we hold to that resting point. Nothing in the world can disturb that resting point. Nothing. So, there may be turmoil on the outside, but there can be a fundamental rest on the inside because we take our resting position on the truths of God's Word. We know that whatever the chaos is, what does it say? It's part of the ages of history. So, by faith we understand the ages were prepared by the Word of God. Is tomorrow prepared by the Word of God? Yes, it is. As I walk into tomorrow, I'm walking into a, a new script. It's like an actor or an actress hired to do a, do a drama. And you, you get here and the screenwriter or the scriptwriter has prepared the way. So if you can view life's adversities and, and that way as thinking that you're just walking into another chapter that he's already written. He knows the drama, you don't. But that's okay. There is a purpose for tomorrow. No matter what happens, there is a purpose that has from all eternity been designed about tomorrow and you. And that's where we have a fundamental rest in the Word of God. 
Now, if you don't want to do that, and when we get tempted to just go our own way and try to operate this way, claiming that we have such powerful reason that we can substitute our reason for God's omniscience, we wind up ultimately back down here in this constant rocking motion, back and forth, back and forth between these two extremes. We go and emphasize the many, the details of life, the pieces, philosophy, that's called empiricism, all my little experiences. And I flick from one experience to the next experience. And then I get tired, or licentiousness is another example. Politically, the version of that would be anarchist. An anarchist doesn't believe any authority. Trouble is, what happens when two anarchists meet? See? So, this is, the, this is the libertarian approach over here. Then on the left side, we have the people, this is the optimist. These, this is the pessimist. And this, by the way, leads eventually to depression. Psychologically, it's depression. Because in depression, you feel totally out of control. Everything's haywire. And that's the psychological. So we could put the psychological, the political, uh, and the philosophical all on that side. Over here, in the moment of optimism, I'm going to control everything. Philosophically, that's rationalism. My powers of reason are so great that I can dominate everything. I can solve every problem. Legalistically, Christian life, I am so good that if I do this good, many good works, God has to say, wow, what a guy you are. And this is legalism that God has to respond to my righteousness. I'm such a great person, such a wonderful person. So that's the other extreme. Or politically, it's tyranny. And, and politically, you can see this very easy. If, you, if this is hard to think about philosophically, think about it politically. A mob or tyranny? A mob or tyranny? And that's the history of politics. Sometimes it oscillates in the middle, but it's one or the other. Optimism or pessimism. And so you could diagram that. The Bible has a technical term for it. It's called vanity. The pagan mentality of the flesh. It just goes round and round from one pole to the next. On one hand, unbelief demands unity and order. I can and I will. That's one pole. And you'll see it in yourself, because you'll see yourself drifting. This is the way the flesh is. This is how the flesh manifests itself in the way we think. I can or I will. In flexible plans, it could be in business, it could be in spiritual life, it could be in family, it could be in church. It's just that I've determined it's going to be this way, regardless of what happens. Well, how can you make a statement like that? You don't know what's going to happen. Not in charge of tomorrow. So, you can't do this. And so, we, we get frustrated because we're over here, and then we say, well, I'm, it's going to be different tomorrow. I'm going to be in charge. No, it doesn't work that way. So then this breaks apart, and then we wind up over here, and what's happening? I can or I fail. This is total, being totally overwhelmed. So it's one way, or the other way. And all that is, is the working out in an ordinary way of the failure to come back to a promise like Hebrews 11.3. By faith, we understand that this problem, this situation, has been prepared by the Word of God. And what we observe and what we experience is not being ultimately caused by things we can get our hand on. Some of it, yes, but not all of it. 
We can't call the final shot. So the issue is, we go back to the Word of God as our authority in the situation. Right, enough said for Hebrews 11.3. Alright, now we're going to continue um, and we'll review just a little bit about this third event in Christ's life. What we're talking about, of course, is Christ's death. And we're making the point that every term in the Scripture, whether it's Christ died for our sins or anything else, is meant to be understood in context. You know the old saying, maybe you've been around Bible teaching circles and you'll hear people often say this, a text out of its context is pretext. And that's a very dangerous thing. And you'll hear people critic, oh, I don't believe the Bible. I mean, you can read anything into the Bible. It's, it's a silly kind of a thing. Yeah, there have been idiots that read the Bible. But uh, is, do you ever write a letter to somebody? The answer to this is very simple. Do you ever write a letter to somebody? Well, yeah, I write, yeah, I've written letters to people. Do you expect 20 people at the other end to have 20 different opinions about what you wrote? No, you don't. If you, if you really thought that way, you'd never write anybody, right? If writing and speaking was so hopelessly fouled up that the receiver couldn't discern any meaning, you wouldn't open your mouth or you wouldn't write with your pen. So every day you're disproving that assertion that, well, any idiot can read the Bible and get all kinds of things out of it. Sure. But that doesn't invalidate the Bible. So we, we, we want to see... Two, uh, one word in particular we studied last time uh, because it's the background for understanding the cross and that's justice. I want to get a little bit of a flavor biblically for what the Bible says justice is all about. And we said they're, they're basically, if you look at the scriptures and you look at the history of the Bible, keeping in mind that as we go through this frame of reference again and again and again, Remember, you start out with creation, the fall, the flood, and the covenant, and you go through all these historical events, each one shedding these great truths, light on these great truths. That's the context historically so that when the Lord Jesus Christ dies, He's had thousands of years of preparation to the human race to understand what happened on that cross. The cross did not happen in isolation from Old Testament history. So therefore... We want to make sure we have some, some idea of, of, of justice. And we also, and this is a trick that I use a lot, when you start studying these things, and uh, it's sad that in our schools and in our preparation of Christian young people, we don't give them the basic tools of thinking, the great ideas. Because education is really involves maybe... 10 to 15 great ideas, and that's about all. And it's just combinations of these ideas. And one of the ideas that you see peppered all over the place is justice. Everybody talking about justice. Well, maybe instead of talking about justice on this issue, or justice in the women's rights, or justice in racial tensions, or justice in business, or this deal, or political situations in the Balkans, instead of just wash going into these discussions, maybe we ought to just say, hey, whoa, whoa, just hold it, hold it, cut. Let's just think about what we're talking about when we use the word justice. Then if I know that, then I can start thinking more clearly about what's, what's the problem over here. So one of the things we came to conclusion last time was this, that in the Bible, 
in contrast to human speculation. Justice is derivative of God's attribute of holiness. God has his attributes. He's sovereign. He's holy. He loves. He's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, immutable, eternal. Lots of other attributes. But that's who God is. That's what he was before the universe came into being. All the, this pre-existed our universe. And one of those things, I'm using the word holiness to encompass righteousness and justice, is holiness here. And that is the source of justice in several ways. It's the source of justice in that when my conscience feels violated and I felt like something's unjust being done to me, that comes about because I am created in whose image? You're created in whose image? God's image. So there's something natural inside our souls that kind of intuitively senses when there's justice and there's not justice. It's part of our creation. And where do we get that from? It's an image of Him. And so, in the human level, the human conscience is a finite replica, a creature version of God's holiness and righteousness. That's why it bothers us. Because it reminds us we don't we don't fit, ultimately, morally and ethically. We don't fit with him. We're at odds with him. And we, we get that thing we call conscience going. So, justice, scripturally, does not come. Now, here's where I'm going to give you some negatives. Because the Bible's always set over against the culture. And you've got to know this. You can't just know, think you know what the Bible says. You want to know what the Bible doesn't say. So, the Bible denies that justice is ultimately determined by man. Practical sources. That means that justice ultimately is not defined by what happens in Annapolis. We have what segment of our government meets together part of the year and they write and publish laws, legislation, House of Delegates. That means that justice is not generated in Annapolis. Now, now you see we're, we're, we're stepping on toes here. Now there's some tension in the air. What do you mean justice isn't done in Annapolis? How dare you assert that? Why, I'm a legislator. I've been down here ten years and I, I give my time, my money, my effort and you're telling me I don't create justice down here? What am I doing down here if I'm not doing that? You're writing laws that you hope approximate justice. But you're not determining justice. You're trying to approximate God's justice. But the standard you're not making. We have to deny that. Annapolis, Washington, D.C., those are not the sources of justice. They are only the sources of attempts to, for man to reflect God's justice. Attempts. And there's always a standard. Now, practically, where do we go from there? What's the immediate conclusion of this? Where does this kind of reasoning lead us to? Let's suppose we don't believe that God is a source of justice and we accept the fact that man is a source of justice. What would you do in 1933 in Germany when the German legislatures turned over the absolute power of the Third Reich to Adolf Hitler? And you say, 
that man creates justice. And now you don't like what you see. How do you respond to the iniquities of the Third Reich? Can you say it's wrong? When you just said that man defines right and wrong? And the answer is when the, when the Nazis come to your doorstep and take your little retarded kid away to kill him because that, that, that kind of child pollutes and contaminates the genes for the Nordic race. You, you can say, I don't like it. You can say, it pains me, it grieves me, I don't like this. But you can't say it's wrong. How can you say it's wrong? You can only say it's wrong if there's a standard that was independent of what went on in Berlin. You see? At the end of World War II, there was a famous trial of the Nazi leaders. This is one that I think every Christian should be aware of, this, this chapter of history. It's called the Nuremberg Trial. At Nuremberg, the issue was, how can we prosecute Nazi atrocities? If you were a Nazi, you were a member of the SS, what would be your defense at Nuremberg? Anybody realize the, the refrain that the Nazis used in their legal defense? Their lawyers sat right down and said it. I followed orders. You know? I followed the order. How you prosecute somebody then? How can you say that the guy shouldn't have followed the order? That was the dilemma that all men faced at Nuremberg. And in the middle of that trial, each country had given a, a justice, several justices. We gave a guy by the name of Henry Jackson to, I think his, his last name was Jackson, I think his first name was Henry Jackson. Not the senator who later came from Washington State. Um, and Jackson was discussing this matter. And as the justices tried to struggle with, how, there's no such thing as international law. I mean, who writes that? So how do we prosecute the SS troops for their atrocities? Well, we don't like it. That, that's not the issue in the trial, whether you like it. The issue is, what was wrong? What was the injustice? And so Jackson said, the standard that we use must be above the transient and the provincial. It's a very famous statement. He used these words. It cannot be transient and it cannot be provincial. What did he mean by that? What would be a, trans, a transient standard? One that went out of vogue. You know, it was popular over here for a while, and then it faded out, and then we decided we'd like it this way. So it can't be that kind of fickle, time-changing standard. Nor can it be provincial in the sense the Frenchman believes it and the German doesn't. See? Now let's bring it to America a little bit more. I had a conversation uh, with a, a black man that was working with me. Uh, uh, one of my black friends is a, is a great Christian guy. And the other one is a non-Christian. And the non-Christian is quite a liberal, left-wing type thinking person. So I decided, he was spouting off one day, and I decided, I heard enough of this, so now I'm going to have some fun. So I said to him, I said, do you believe in absolute truth and absolute standards? That no matter what 
the rules of the law says that there's a standard in back of that that's the primary source. No, no, man makes it all. He does? Then explain then to me, please, what Martin Luther King did in Birmingham when he told people, don't get on the buses in the name of justice. And you should have seen him squirm around because he caught what I was saying. If you say that man is right, then the southern white segregationist was correct. He had made the rule. And Martin Luther King was wrong in trying to violate it. So you see, if man makes law, it eliminates all reform. Because the reformer comes against the established law and says it's wrong and it should be this way. That's the definition of a reformer. How do you reform anything if you don't have a standard over and above the written law? You see what it does? It destroys all reform. Okay, I think we've labored enough to see that in the Bible, the Bible makes no bones about it. Justice is it. And we, we went to Psalm 51 to point this out. So if we just reviewed Psalm 51, and David confesses his sin. It's a famous statement in there. And when we confess our sins, by the way, there's a lesson here, very practical in the Christian life. If we're not clear on this issue of justice, we're going to have a real time when we fail and we sit and we confess our sins to God. That we really don't confess our sins to God if we harbor unbiblical views of justice. I mean, he's accepting a confession. Of God. I'm not saying he doesn't accept it, but I'm just saying that it's not really right to confess sin when on your mind you're thinking, I embarrassed uh, my Christian, fellow Christians or I did this to somebody that I love or I did this. That's true. All of those things are true. But that's not what happens when we confess our sins. Because in Psalm 51.4, David says, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Now, is David denying that he hurt... Uh, Uriah? Is he denying that he hurt Bathsheba? That he hurt his previous wives? He's not denying that, but he says, at the point I confess my sin to God, I have to see it as a sin against Him and get that dealt with. So that's how this justice plays a role just in almost ordinary, everyday Christian living. So that's the first thing we know about God's justice. Then last time we also went to something else. We said that another feature of God's justice is that when you see justice in the Mosaic Law Code for all of society, justice calls for restitution. Exodus chapter 22 gives you 10 to 15 illustrations of this in the, in the, in the criminal law code of the time. It's interesting, uh, having been involved in prison ministry here for many, many years um, and dealing with the legal um, side of things, it's interesting that in the law codes of Israel, there's no mention of jail. No mention of jail. 
The only mentions, it's interesting, if you take a concordance, the only time you see prisons mentioned in scripture, in two famous examples, can you think? Famous men of the Bible that were in jail. Well, Paul comes to mind, but in the Old Testament. Joseph and Daniel. And where was that? In Israel or outside of Israel in both cases? It's outside of Israel. Pagan nations. Well, then you say, how did they control crime? Well, Exodus 22 tells you one way they controlled it. They required the criminal to pay double, triple, and sometimes quadruple damages to his victim. And you say, well, suppose the guy said, no, I'm not going to do that. They killed him. Capital punishment. That was rebellion against the authorities. Sorry. And that's what had a permanent solution to that problem. So the criminal law code had a way of coping with these things. But it didn't imprison people and treat them like animals in a cage and send them to graduate school so they could learn to be better criminals when they got out, which is what we do. We have a, you know, a very silly system. Suppose somebody robs somebody, okay? Let's say they, they take, rob you of $15,000, $20,000. I mean, really hurtful. Damages or something, your house, your car or something. How, do, how does society solve that problem? Well, does the criminal ever pay you back? No, you never get a dollar out of the criminal. What happens? Send him to jail. Throw away the keys. You know what you don't throw away? The tax bill to finance three meals a day for the next 20 days, 20 years, or whatever he's in jail. So now look what we've done. Now we've got $10,000 to $20,000 original damage over here. Now we've got $30,000 a year times 10 years, $300,000 in taxpayer money. So what have we done to the damage over here? We haven't resolved the damage, and now we impose another burden on all of society to pay for this for the next 20 years. And then what else do we do that's so brilliant? Now the insurance rates go up because the insurance company has to pay this, so now all of us pay again. We're paying to the insurance company, we're paying to the jails, we're paying to lawyers, we're paying to... They didn't do that in Exodus 22. See? The Bible isn't quite so primitive as we think. We can learn a lot from the law codes in the Word of God. God isn't stupid. And we ought to think about when he set up a society, how did he... Put, I mean, he wasn't naive. He had ways of coping with this. Maybe we can learn something from that. Well, justice in the Bible means this godly order has to be restored. So there's a restitutionary component to biblical justice. Now, the next thing that we learned last time, which transitions into tonight and the Messiah, the third thing is that in the case of our sin, what do we do for restitution? The question is, what is the source of the restitution? The source of the restitution. Let's go back to Genesis. Remember, last week we went in Genesis chapter 3, the first animal to be slaughtered. And slaughtering of animals is a modern issue. The animals' rights movement. And there's some things about the animal rights movement that are absolutely weird, silly and stupid. But there are also some things about the movement that are true. 
The Bible is very humane toward animals. In Genesis 3, verse 21, God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife. So the first, how could you get skin except by killing an animal? Here's the first blood sacrifice. So, God says, Adam and Eve, you've sinned, you've ruined the life that I gave you. That life is cursed now. Now you owe me. But how do Adam and Eve pay? They can't, because they don't have the assets. So now where's the source of the restitution? So this leads to a practice that God kept in motion for century after century after century of time throughout the scriptures, and that is animal sacrifice. Let's think about why he did this. The first thing to notice is that the animals are giving their life for man. There's a substitution of sorts in which the animal life is traded for man's life. So there's a substitutionary aspect to this. That's Genesis 3.21 and the whole thing. In order for the animals, why are animals picked instead of plants? Cain thought he could come to God with plants. Abel thought he could come to God with blood sacrifice of animals. Well, what's the difference between plant and animal in creation account? Nefesh. The Hebrew word for life is true and labeled only of animals, not of plants. Adam and Eve could eat plants before the fall, and that did not cause death of the plant. plant didn't die in the nefesh sense. So plant and animals are distinguished. So animals become, because of the nefesh principle, the animals are used as media so that Adam and Eve start to learn that for their nefesh, other nefesh have to be substituted. Jesus Christ wasn't around. The Incarnation hadn't happened yet. So this is preparatory to the Incarnation. So animals have nephesh, plants do not. Animals, therefore, are selected to give their nephesh for human nephesh. Then what happens is that the animals are close enough to man. Animals are analogous to us in that they feel, they feel pain, and when we have to kill them in an animal sacrifice, we have to cause pain. A problem today is, because we're not living in rural America anymore, we don't see the slaughter of animals. It's all neatly packaged in the supermarket shelf. But we don't see the pain that we cause. In order for, to get meat, you have to kill something. That causes the animal pain. So something has to die in order that we can survive. That's the lesson, we, we won't get into it tonight, but remember that's the lesson in Genesis 9 of why there's a meat diet after the flood and not before the flood and so forth. Okay, so now through the animal sacrifices, we learn century after century the issue of substitution for God's restitutionary justice. We learn that it has to be something that's alive, it can't be plants. 
we see the analogous nature of animals and the horror and the suffering it causes. What is another illustration in the Old Testament that God used to communicate to us the pain that is caused by sacrificial death? It came very close to human sacrifice. Genesis. An event in Genesis. Abraham and Isaac. And that's the passage of Scripture. If you take a concordance and check out, and you look up this term that's used of the Lord Jesus Christ, remember one of the titles of Jesus is the only begotten. Monogenes. You know where that term first occurs? God says to Abraham, take your monogenes. Take your only begotten son and slit his throat for me. So, in that scene of Abraham and Isaac, God comes yet closer. You see, each step... God reveals more and more of the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't consciously think of it in terms, perhaps, of a human Messiah at the time. But man was being led to this end. And that's why the Bible distinguishes the religion of Cain from the religion of Abel in the book of Hebrews and the religion of Cain in the book of Jude. The way of Cain is the way of getting around bloody sacrifice. It's bloodless religion. Now, that is not saying that animism, a lot of tribes in primitive areas have practiced animism where they have sacrificed. The Aztecs and the Incas ruined their civilization because they used human sacrifices. Cut out the heart right there in a big slab of stone. But behind all that blood and gore was a truth that they had once learned from Father Noah. That if you want to approach God, and get on right terms with God's justice, there's got to be restitution. It's got to come from outside you. So it's got to come from animals or man. And in paganism, they slipped over the line and began to slaughter their babies. They began to slaughter slaves. They finally began to slaughter people in their families. And you had a literal bloody religion that was apostate religion. But then on the other hand, if you don't go this way and you avoid this issue of blood sacrifice and atonement for sin, then you no way are coping with God's justice. Another passage of the Old Testament that shows this is what happened when Israel was freed from Egypt. What was the climactic moment that is commemorated to this day by Orthodox Jewish families all across the world? the past wasn't their blood it was a lamb that had to be sacrificed now we're specifying the kinds of animals see certain kinds of animals are picked out as sacrifices why is that because zoologically there's something about sheep that God wants us to see there's something about that particular animal and to kill that particular animal and go through this, this experience that is teaching us something about the cross of Christ. And so he ordains this strange practice of blood atonement, blood atonement, blood atonement. And years ago, as I said, when the gospel was preached in, in a much more direct fashion, the liberals... 30, 40 years ago, used to make fun of the fundamentalists. If you were a fundamentalist and you had a liberal friend in your home, they'd say, I don't believe in your bloody religion. They, they took pride 
in setting themselves apart that we, we have a higher ethic than you people in your bloody religion. So, so this is a component of, of, of the whole issue of justice. Now we want to move on tonight um, to the Messiah and how we start in the Bible's discussion in the progressive revelation. We see now that the Messiah comes in. So we have Messiah and he comes over here and he has something all the details aren't quite clear but Messiah is going to somehow be associated with a substitutionary blood atonement. You see, they couldn't make this link until what? Until they understood the necessity of substitutionary blood atonement. See, this lesson had to be learned first. It took a long time to learn this. And then after we learn that God's justice demands restitution for my sin, and I don't like this. I mean, the idea of having to kill an animal must have created the thought in people's minds, you know, look, what my, look at the consequences of my sin. When I fall out from before a holy God, look, look at what it takes to restore fellowship. Look what it, look the damage it's done here. So now the Messiah becomes linked to that. So we want to look at passages now where the blood atonement and the Messiah come together. And of course, I've already said that the, the Passover was one of these. On the notes on page 76, you'll see where we start to work with this. If you turn to Genesis chapter 3, just above that passage that, where God killed the animal, God already revealed the first truth about Messiah. This is called by theologians, there's a term for this, if you read a serious commentator, there's a word that's used, Latin word, uh, Proto-Evangelium not evangelism, proto-evangelium. The first, proto, the first gospel announcement. And it's Genesis 3.15. That's the proto-evangelium. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Now notice the different wounds that are made. He will bruise you on the head. That's a mortal wound. But you will bruise him on the heel. That's a wound from which he will recover. Two things about that, many things about that verse, but in our time, we're kind of hitting it fast. Notice in the third clause of Genesis 3.15, there's a word there that should have, should have grabbed the attention of every Jewish reader, or every reader of the Bible. And that's this word, see. It's the word for sperm. What is unusual about the word usage in verse 15? Women don't have sperm. Why is that word associated with a woman there? The text doesn't say, but it's a very odd construction. Something is not right. We read this and we get so used to it, you know, we just go through it at 35 miles an hour and don't even read the signs. But we, there's something screwy about that statement. And it's deliberately put in there by the Holy Spirit, hoping 
But somebody's going to say, read that and say, hey, what does this mean? The sperm of the woman? What's going on here? Well, of course, we know historically what that is, and that is a reference to the virgin birth. The woman created a seed. And the Holy Spirit brought about the conception. Her seed shall now bruise you on the head, and you will bruise him on the heel, talking to Satan. And, of course, in mythology, this truth was partially remembered in a famous Greek myth. Anybody remember what the myth was? Somebody whose heel his mother held when he was a baby. And it prevented him, it gave him uh, immunity from all parts except his heel. And we call that, in expression English language, the Achilles heel. Because Achilles was held by his mother and, um, and it was the place where she held him by the heel that was his vulnerable, vulnerable point. And that's probably a mythological distortion of Genesis, the Genesis truth here. Okay, so the Messiah in the context is, is spoken of. The virgin birth is hinted at, and the Messiah is said to engage a battle with Satan and will be wounded. It's not explicitly in context linked yet. Verse 15 and verse 21 aren't linked together yet. But that's the first thing. So you, let's watch the progress. Now, there's four or five of these links that go on between the Messiah that I'm going to point out to you. The first one is in Genesis 3. Let's go to the second one. The second one we've already talked about tonight, and that's the Passover. Jesus Christ, the night before He was betrayed, He took bread and He took the wine. Jesus Christ celebrated the Passover. And he did so because, in effect, he was acting out the Passover uh, to show his participation. We get into that in a, in a little bit. So Exodus 12 is the second link between the Messiah and the substitutionary atonement. The third link is that every major biblical covenant in the Scriptures Every covenant in the scripture is inaugurated by a blood sacrifice starting with a Noahic covenant. Noah made a sacrifice. Abraham had a sacrifice. The Sinaitic covenant was installed by sacrifice. And then finally, what was the covenant we studied a year or so ago, which was the thing and the focus into the future? The new covenant. And when the Lord Jesus Christ, in the middle of the first communion, what did he say? This is, as he held up the cup, the blood of the new covenant. So as the Lord Jesus installed the covenant, that night, when 24 hours later, he would pay with his blood, with his life, the installation of the new covenant. It all fits together. He was doing nothing that hadn't already been done in the Old Testament. Okay, a fourth link, Isaiah 53. This is the most controversial passage to Jewish people in the Scriptures. Isaiah 53. This has been a crux, a source of argumentation for centuries. A very famous portion of the Old Testament. Knowledgeable Jews will react 
I say knowledgeable Jews because there are many Jewish people today who know less about the Bible than Gentiles. But not, Jews that are knowledgeable of the Scripture are very sensitive to this passage. And in Isaiah chapter 53, you look at verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. By the way, there's no portrait in Scripture of the physical appearance of Jesus Christ except this. This is the closest we ever come, with one exception in the Gospel of John that I can think of, where people said that he wasn't yet 50, which means that he looked probably older than he was because he was only 30-something. Um, but here it says that if you saw the Lord Jesus, uh, not the hippie that's painted you know, in, the, in the artistry, but if you saw the real Jesus, you would not particularly think of him as a particularly outstanding person. Um, very plain looking. That's the nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Wasn't that super attractive physically? Verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Now watch verse 4 and 5. Because this is what really causes grief to Jewish people in the knowledgeable scriptures who are not Messianic Jews. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. Now watch it right there. Do you see what's happening in Isaiah 53 that's exciting? Isaiah 53 links the Messiah to a substitutionary death. It's right here. What does it say? He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us turned to his own ways. But the Lord, look at this one. The Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Now that is a central passage about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ is Isaiah 53. Well, you say, well, how do, how do unbelieving Jews handle this? Before Christianity, the universal interpretation of this by the Jewish community was that this was the Messiah. No, no doubt. Then after Jesus came, and the Christian Jews began to say, see, right there, there's Messiah. Then they said, well, gee, let's take another look at this one. So things got greasy then. And so the interpretation of Isaiah 53 came to be, well, maybe that's, the, maybe that's the nation Israel there. And in the notes on page 77, um, this is why I said, uh, if you look at the mid part of that page, not until the Middle Ages did the rabbis shift to what is claimed today as the Jewish interpretation. So look at the date. How, how many centuries went by between the Middle Ages and the death of Christ? Anybody? hundred guess? Nine? Ten? So it was ten centuries later that this interpretation got all greased up. Some Gentile scholars insist that the first century Jews did not recognize any vicarious suffering. They say they just didn't recognize it. These scholars are opposed by Hebrew Christians. Dr. Fruchtenbaum notes, and here's some evidences for you. I searched these out, so it's those of you who like to 
capture little evidences. Here's a list for you on page 77 of my notes. Dr. Fruchtenbaum notes that the Zohar, written in 110 A.D., that's after the death of Christ, preserves an old first century Jewish interpretation of Isaiah 53. Quote, and this is what the Zohar says, were it not that the Messiah had thus lightened sickness, pain, and chastisement off of Israel and taken them upon himself, there had been no man able to bear Israel's chastisement for transgression of the law. So surely there's an element of vicarious or substitution of messianic suffering in this non-Christian Jewish first century tradition. Furthermore, Fruchtenbaum points out this interpretive tradition of Isaiah 53 continued in Jewish circles well into the Christian era, occurring in remarkable places such as the Yom Kippur Musaf prayer written in 7th century A.D. now. Now we're up to the 7th century A.D. And here's what the prayer says. Messiah, our righteousness, is departed from us. He has borne the yoke of our iniquities and our transgressions. He bears our sins that he might find pardon for our iniquities. The allusion to Isaiah 53 is unmistakable. So, what we've said tonight is, out of this core of justice that we've learned in the Scripture, then we moved to the animal sacrifice that was a revelatory preparation for understanding the death of Christ, then the Messiah prophetically was linked into this substitutionary blood atonement. And next week, we're going to deal with the crucifixion narratives, and we're going to cite certain things that maybe you haven't seen. Hopefully, some, most of us have, but there may be some who are new to the Scriptures who haven't noticed particular ways that the Bible reports the death to have occurred. Strange things in this. So we'll, we'll, we'll work with that uh, after we get done the next week's discussion of how the Bible is true. Uh, again, there are no notes. Uh, I have some notes here, I think, for a couple of people that didn't pick them up last week. Father, thank you for our time tonight. And we are reminded again of the fact of the serious consequences of a creature sinning against its creator. And we pray that you would burden our hearts with a sense of our own sin not to be morbid, but to be faithful in turning this around and recognizing by faith what you have done for us in the death of Christ. That our sins were so grievous, so damaging, so worthy of divine justice and judgment that there needed to be a human substitution for our sin. And that we can intellectualize and reason all we want to, we can feel, we can emote, we can do whatever. But when it comes down to the judicial basis of our relationship with you, it cannot be on any other ground than the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.